Chapter Eight of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Linda Andrus. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Chapter Eight. Family Correspondence. From the time of the great event of the arrival of the Miss Ibbotsons, Mr. Hope had longed to communicate all connected with it to his family. As often as Hester looked eminently beautiful, he wished his sisters could see her. As often as he felt his spirit moved and animated by his conversations with Margaret, he thought of Frank, and wished that the poor fellow could for a day exchange the heats and fatigues, and vapid society, of which he complained as accompaniments of service in india for some one of the wood and meadow rambles or garden brolics which were the summer pleasures of deerbrook now unspeakably enhanced by the addition lately made to its society frank wrote that the very names of meadows and kine of cowslips trout and harriers were a refreshment to a soldier's fancy when the heats and the solitude of spirit in which he was compelled to live made him weary of the novelties which had at first pleased him in the east he begged that edward would go on to write as he did of everything that passed in the village of everything which could make him for a whole evening fancy himself in deerbrook and repose himself in its shacks and quietness mr hope had felt for a month past that such a letter was by this time due to frank and that he had for once failed in punctuality but he now for the first time found it difficult to get time to write he never dreamed of sending frank's letters which would be esteemed by others of a moderate length when he did write it was an epistle indeed and during this particular may and june there was always something happening which prevented his having his hours to himself in other words, he was always at the Greys when not engaged in his professional duties. The arrival of a letter from Frank one day gave him the necessary stimulus, and he sat down on the instant to open his heart to his brother. Frank was his younger and only brother, and the person in the world most deeply indebted to him. Their parents being dead, it was Edward who had been Frank's dependence as he grew up. It was Edward who had at great cost and pains, gratified his wish to go into the army, and had procured him the best educational advantages in preparation for a military life. It was Edward, who had always treated him with such familiar friendship, that he had scarcely felt as if he wanted any other intimate, and who seemed to forget the five years' difference of age between them at all times, but when it afforded a reason for pressing kindness and assistance upon him. The confidence between them was as familiar and entire as if they had been twin brothers. The epistle which Frank was to have the benefit of, on the present occasion, was even longer than usual, from the delay which had caused an accumulation of tidings and of thoughts. Deerbrook, June 20th, 18- Dear Frank, your letter of December last has arrived to remind me how far I am past my time in writing to you. I make no apologies for my delay, however, and I do not pretend to feel any remorse about it. 
We never write to one another from a mere sense of duty, and long may it be before we do so. Unless we write because we cannot help it, pray let us let it alone. As for the reasons why my inclination to talk to you has not overpowered all impediments till now, you shall have them by and by. Meanwhile, here, before your eyes, is the proof that I cannot but spend this June evening with you. You ask about our grandfather, and I have somewhat to say to you about him. He is still living, very infirm, as you may suppose, but, I think, as clear in mind as I have ever known him. He sent for me two months ago, as you will have heard from the letter I find he caused to be written to you about the business which then occupied his mind. My share in that business he would represent to you as it appeared to him, but I must give you an account of it as it appears to myself. He sent for me to take leave of me, as he said, but, in my opinion, to receive my acknowledgments for his latest disposition of his property by will. The new arrangements did not please me at all, and I am confident that you would have liked them no better than I, and I wished not a little that you were nearer, that we might have acted together. I know that he once intended to divide his property equally among us four, but of late from some unaccountable feeling of indifference about Emily and Anne, or, as is more likely, from some notion about women not wanting money and not knowing how to manage it, he has changed his mind and destined his money for you and me, leaving my sisters only a hundred pounds each as a remembrance. He informed me of this as soon as I arrived. I thought him quite well enough to hear reason, and I spoke my mind plainly to him. I had no right to answer for you any further than for your sense of justice and your affection for your sisters. The way in which the matter was settled at last, therefore, with great pains and trouble, was that you and our sisters share equally, and that I have the legacy of one hundred pounds, which was destined for one of them. The reasons why I declined a fourth part of the property were sufficient to my mind, and will be so, I doubt not, to yours. Out of this property I have had my professional education, while you and my sisters have received nothing at all. This professional education has enabled me to provide sufficiently for myself so far, and this provision will, in all probability, go on to increase, while my sisters want as much as fairly can be put into their hands. Their husbands are not likely ever to be rich men, and will probably be poor for some years to come. Their children have to be educated, and, in short, there is every reason why Emily and Anne should have this money, and none why I should. I am afraid the old gentleman is not very well pleased with my way of receiving what he intended for kindness, but that cannot be helped. If he falls back into his previous state of mind, and leaves the whole, after all, to you and me, I shall set the matter right as far as I can, by dividing my portion between my sisters." and I feel confident that you will do the same, but I earnestly hope this will not happen. It will be a very different thing to my sisters receiving this money by their grandfather's will as their due, and from our hands as a gift, the way in which they will look at it. The letter to you was sent off without delay, in order that, 
in case of any dissatisfaction whatever on your part your wishes might have the better chance of being made known to us during the old gentleman's life i doubt not that your thoughts whatever they may be will be on the way to me before this reaches you and i can have as little doubt what they are you know mr blunt says that men are created to rob their sisters a somewhat partial view of the objects and achievements of mortal existence it must be owned and a statement which i conceive the course of your life for one will not go to confirm but a man must have had a good deal of experience of what he is talking of before he could make so sweeping a generalization from the facts of life and i am afraid mr blunt has some reason for what he says medical men receive many confidences in sick-rooms you know and some among others which had better be reserved for the lawyer what i have seen in this way leads me to imagine that my grandfather's notion is a very common one that women who have little occasion for money and do not know how to manage it and that their property is to be drawn upon to the very last to meet the difficulties and supply the purposes of their brothers on the utter injustice and absurdity of such a notion there can be no disagreement between you and me nor i imagine in our actions with regard to it i heard from emily yesterday the letter is more than half full of stories about the children and accounts of her principles and plans with regards to them she writes on the same subjects to you no doubt for her heart is full of them her husband finds the post of consul at a little spanish port rather a dull affair as we anticipated and groans at the mention of bristol or liverpool shipping he says but i like the tone of his postscript very well he is thankful for the honest independence of his office affords him and says he can tolerate his spanish neighbours though they are as ignorant as turkish ladies for the sake of his family and of the hope of returning sooner or later to live in his own country after having discharged his duty to his children theirs must be an irksome life enough as much of it as is passed out of their own doors but they seem to be finding out that it is not so much the where and the how as the what people are that matters to their peace of mind and i suppose those who love each other and have settled what they are living for can attain what they most want nearly so well in one place as another poor anne wrote to you i know after the death of her infant her little highland men as she proudly called him in her last letter before she lost him gilchrist talked last year of bringing her and his boy south this summer and i had some hopes of seeing them all here but i have not been able to get them to speak again of travelling and i give it up for this year i hope your letters and theirs fall due seasonably that your reports of all your devices to cool yourself reach them in the depth of their caithness winter and that all they say to you of their snowdrifts and freshets is acceptable when you are panting in the hottest of your noons anne writes more cheerfully than she did and gilchrist says she is exerting herself to overcome her sorrow their love must be passing strange in the eyes of such as despised anne's match it is such as it should make anne's brothers feel very cordially towards gilchrist we have drifted asunder in life rather strangely when one comes to think of it 
and our anchorage grounds are pretty far apart. Who would have thought it, when we four used to climb the old apple-tree together, and drop from the garden-wall? I wonder whether we shall ever contrive to meet in one house once more, and whether I may be honoured by my house being the place? It is possible, and I spend certain of my dreams upon the project. Do you not find that one effect of this wide separation is, to make one fancy the world smaller than one used to think of it? You, on the other side of it, probably waked up to this conviction long ago. It is just opening upon me, shut up in my nook of our little island. When I have a letter from you, like that which lies before me, spiced with an old family joke or two, and a good many new ones of your own, all exactly like yourself, I am persuaded you cannot be very far off, and I should certainly call you from my window to come in to tea, but for um, a disagreeable suspicion that I should get no answer. But do tell me in your next whether our, our globe has not been made far too much of its children, and whether its oceans do not look very like ponds, when you cast your eye over them to that small old apple-tree I mentioned just now. But you want news, this being the place of all others to send to from the other side of the world for news. Deerbrook has rung with news and rumours of news since winter. The first report after the ice broke up in March was that I was going to be married to Deborah Giles. Who is Deborah Giles, you all ask? She is not going to be a relation of yours, in the first place. Secondly, she is the daughter of the boatman, whose boats Enderby and I are wont to hire. The young lady may be all that ever woman was, for aught I know, for I never spoke to her in my life, except that one day I asked her for something to bail the boat with. But I heard that the astonishment of Deerbrook was that I was engaged to a woman who could not read or write. So you see we of Deerbrook follow our old pastime of first inventing marvels, and then being scarcely able to believe them. I rather suspect that we have some wag among us who fabricates news, to see how much will be received and retailed. But perhaps these rumours, even the wildest of them, rise by natural exhalation from the nooks and crevices of village life. My five years' residence has not qualified me to pronounce absolutely upon this. Old Smithson is dead. You could not have seen him half a dozen times when you were here, but you may chance to recollect him. A short old man, with white hair and deep-set grey eyes. He is less of a loss to the village than almost any other man would be. He was so shy and quiet, and kept so much within his own gate, that some fancied he must be a miser. But, though he spent little on himself, his money made its way abroad, and his heirs are rather disappointed at finding the property no larger than when he came into it. He is much missed by his own household, and, I own, by myself. I was not often with him, but it was something to feel that there was one among us who was free from ambition and worldly cares, content to live on in the enjoyment of humble duties and simple pleasures, one who would not have changed colour at the news of a bequest of ten thousand pounds, but could be very eager about his grand-nephew's prize at school, and about the first forget-me-not of the season besides his pond, 
and the first mushroom in his meadow. During the fortnight of his illness the village inquired about him, but when it was all over there was not much to forget of one so little known, and we hear of him no more. The Greys and Rowlands go on much as usual, the gentlemen of the family agreeing very well, and the ladies rather the reverse. The great grievance this spring has been that Mrs. Rowland has seen fit to enlarge her hall, and to make a porch to her door. Her neighbours are certain that, in the course of her alterations, every principal beam of her house has been cut through, and that the whole will fall in. No such catastrophe has yet occurred, however. I have not been called in to set any broken bones, and I have not much expectation of an accident, as Mr. Rowland understands building too well to allow his house to be cut down over his head. As for the porch, I do not perceive what can be alleged to its disadvantage, but that some people think it ugly. Here I must cease my gossip. I regularly begin my letters with the intention of telling you all that I hear and see out of my profession, but I invariably stop short, as I do now, from disgust at the nonsense I should have to write. It is endurable enough to witness, for one thing quickly dismisses another, and some relief occurs from the more amiable or intellectual qualities of the parties concerned. But I hate detail in writing, and I never do get through the whole list of particulars that I believe you would like to have. You must excuse me now, and take my word for it, in the large, that we are all pretty much what we were when you saw us three years ago, except, of course, being three years older, and some few of us three years wiser. It will be a satisfaction to you also to know that my practice has made a very good growth for the time. You liked my last year's report of it. It has increased more since that time than even during the preceding year and I have no further anxiety about my worldly prospects. I am as well satisfied with my choice of an occupation in life as ever. Mine has its anxieties, and desagremens, as others have, but I am convinced I could not have chosen better. You saw, when you were with me, something of the anxiety of responsibility, what it is, for instance, to await the one or the other event of a desperate case and I could tell you a good deal that you do not and cannot know of the perils and troubles attendant upon being the depository of so much domestic and personal confidence as my function imposes upon me the necessity of receiving. I sometimes long to be able to see nothing but what is apparent to all in society, to perceive what is ostensible, and to dream of nothing more, not exactly like children, but like the members of large and happy families, who carry about with them the purity and peace of their homes, and therefore take cognizance of the pure and peaceful only whom they meet abroad. But it is childish, or indolent, or cowardly, to desire this. While there is private vice, and wretchedness, and domestic misunderstanding, one would desire to know it, if one can do anything to cure or alleviate it. Dr. Levitt and I have the same feeling about this, and I sometimes hope that we mutually prepare for and aid each other's work. There is a bright side to our business, as I need not tell you. The mere exercise of our respective professions, the scientific as well as the moral interest of them, 
is as much to us as the theory of your business to you, and that is saying a great deal. You will not quarrel with the idea of the scientific interest of Dr. Levitt's profession in his hands, for you know how learned he is in the complex science of humanity. You remember the eternal wonder of the Greys at his liberality towards dissenters. Of that liberality he is unconscious, as it is the natural, the inevitable result of his knowledge of men, of his having been hunting the waterfalls from his youth up following up thought and prejudice to their fountains. When I see him bland and grey among us, I feel pretty confident that his greatest pleasure is the same as mine, that of reposing in the society of the innocent, the single-hearted, the unburdened, after having seen what the dark corners of social life are. It is like coming out of a fetid cave into the evening sunshine. Of late we have felt this in an extraordinary degree, but I must tell you in an orderly way what has happened to us. I have put off entering upon the grand subject, partly from the pleasure of keeping one's best news for the last, and partly from shyness in beginning to describe what it is impossible that you should enter into. I am well aware of your powers of imagination and sympathy, but you have not lived five years within five miles of a country village, and you can no more understand our present condition then we can appreciate your sherbet and your mountain summer-house. There are two ladies here from Birmingham, so far beyond any ladies that we have to boast of, that some of us begin to suspect that Deerbrook is not the Athens and Arcadia united that we have been accustomed to believe it. You can have no idea how our vanity is mortified, and our pride abased, by finding what the world can produce out of the bounds of Deerbrook. We bear our humiliation wonderfully, however. Our verdun woods echo with laughter, and singing is heard beside the brook. The voices of children, grown and ungrown, go up from all the meadows round, and wit and wisdom are wafted over the surface of our river at eventide. The truth is, these girls have brought in new life among us, and there is not one of us, except the children, that is not some years younger for their presence. Mr. Gray deserts his business for them, like a schoolboy, and Mr. Rowland watches his opportunity to play truant in turn. Mrs. Enderby gives dances, and looks quite disposed to lead off in person. Mrs. Plumstead has grown quite giddy about sorting the letters, and her voice has not been heard further than three doors off since the arrival of the strangers. Dr. Levitt is preaching his old sermons. Mrs. Gray is well-nigh intoxicated with being the hostess of these ladies, and has even reached the point of allowing her drawing-room to be used every afternoon. Enderby is a fixture while they are so. Neither mother, sister, friend, nor frolic ever detained him here before for a month together. He was going away in a fortnight when these ladies came. They have been here six weeks, and Enderby has dropped all mention of the external world. If you ask, as you are at this moment doing in your own heart, how I stand under this influence, I really cannot tell you. I avoid inquiring too closely. I enjoy every passing day too much to question it, and I let it go, and so must you. But who are they, you want to know? They are distant cousins of Mr. Gray's, orphans, 
and in mourning for their father. They are just above twenty, and their name is Ibbotson. Are they handsome, is your next question? The eldest, Hester, is beautiful as the evening star. Margaret is very different. It does not matter what she is as to beauty, for the question seems never to have entered her own mind. I doubt whether it has often occurred to her whether she can be this or that or the other. She is, and there is an end of the matter. Such pure existence, without question, without introspection, without hesitation or consciousness, I never saw in any one above eight years old. Yet she is wise. It becomes not me to estimate how wise. You will ask how I know this already. I knew it the first day I saw them. I knew it by her infinite simplicity, from which all selfishness is discharged, and into which no folly can enter. The airs of heaven must have been about her from her infancy to nourish such health of the soul. What her struggle is to be in life I cannot conceive, for not a morbid tendency is to be discerned. I suppose she may be destined to make mistakes, to find her faith deceived, her affections rebuked, her full repose delayed. If, like the rest of us, she be destined to struggle, it must be to conflict of this kind, for it is inconceivable that any should arise from herself. Yet is she as truly human as the weakest of us, engrossed by affection and susceptible of passion. Her affection for her sister is a sort of passion. It has some of the features of the serene guardianship of one from on high, but it is yet more like the passionate servitude of the benefited to a benefactor, for instance, which is perhaps the most graceful attitude in which our humanity appears. Where are the words that can tell what it is to witness, day by day, the course of such a life as this? To see, living and moving before one's eyes, the very spirit that one had caught glimpses of, wandering in the brightest vistas of one's imagination, in the holiest hours of thought. Yet is there nothing fearful, as in the presence of a spirit? There is scarcely even a sense of awe, so childlike is her deportment. I go, grave and longing to listen. I come away, and I find I have been talking more than anyone, revealing, discussing, as if I were the teacher and not the learner. You will say the worshipper. Say it if you will. Our whole little world worships the one or the other. Hester is also well worthy of worship. If there were nothing but her beauty, she would have a wider world than ours of Deerbrook at her feet. But she has much more. She is what you would call a true woman. She has a generous soul, strong affections, and a susceptibility which interferes with her serenity. She is not exempt from the trouble and snare into which the lot of women seems to drive them, too close a contemplation of self, too nice a sensitiveness, which yet does not interfere with devotedness to others. She will be a devoted wife, but Margaret does not wait to be a wife to be devoted. Her life has been devotedness, and will be to the end. If she were left the last of her race, she would spend her life in worshipping the unseen that lay about her, and would be as unaware of herself as now. What a comfort it is to speak freely of them! This is the first relief of the kind I have had. Everyone is praising them. Everyone is following them. But to whom but you 
can I speak of them, even to you, I filled my first sheet with mere surface matter. I now wonder how I could. As for the general opinion of Deerbrook on the engrossing subject of the summer, you will anticipate it in your own mind, concluding that Hester is most worshipped on account of her beauty, and that Margaret's influence must be too subtle and refined to operate on more than a few. This is partly but not wholly the case. It has been taken for granted from the beginning, by the many, that Hester is to be exclusively the adored, and Enderby has, I fancy, as many broad hints as myself of this general conclusion. But I question whether Enderby assents any more than myself. Margaret's influence may be received as unconsciously as it is exerted, but it is not, therefore, the less real, while it is the more potent. I see old Jem Bird raise himself up from the churchyard bench by his staff, and stand uncovered as Hester passes by. I see the children in the road touch one another, and look up at her. I see the admiration which diffuses itself like sunshine around her steps. All this homage to Hester is visible enough. But I also see Sidney Gray growing manly, and his sisters amiable under Margaret's eye. I fancy I perceive Enderby, but that is his own affair. I am sure I daily witness one healing and renovating process which Margaret is unconsciously affecting. There is no one of us so worthy of her, so capable of appreciating her, as Maria Young. They are friends, and Maria Young is becoming a new creature. Health and spirit are returning to that poor girl's countenance. There is absolutely a new tone in her voice, and a joyous strain in her conversation, which I, for one, never recognized before. It is a sight on which angels might look down, to see Margaret, with her earnest face, listening humbly, and lovingly serving the infirm and much-tried friend whom she herself is daily lifting up into life and gladness. I have done with listening to abuse of life in the world. I will never sit still under it again. If there are two such as these sisters, springing out of the bosom of a busy town, and quietly passing along their path of life, casting sanctity around them as they go, if there are two such, why not more? If God casts such seeds of goodness into our nook, how do we know but that he is sowing the whole earth with it? I will believe it henceforth. You will wonder, as I have wondered many a time within the last six weeks, what is to become of us when we lose these strangers. I can only say, God help us. But that time is far off. They came for several months, and no one hints at their departure yet. They are the most unlearned creatures about country life that you can conceive, with a surpassing genius for country pleasures. Only imagine the charm of our excursions. They are never so happy as when in the fields or on the river, and we all feel ourselves only too blessed in being able to indulge them. Our mornings are all activity and despatch, that our afternoons may be all mirth, and our evenings repose. I am afraid this will make you sigh with mingled envy and sympathy, but whatever is that can be told, you may rely upon it that I shall tell you, trusting to your feeling both pleasure and pain in virtuous moderation. I have done my story, and now I am going to look what o'clock it is, a thing I have refrained from, 
in my impulse to tell you all. The house is quite still, and I heard the church clock strike something very long just now, but I would not count. It is so. It was midnight that the clock struck. I shall seal this up directly. I dare not trust my morning, my broad daylight mood with it. Now, as soon as you have got thus far, just take up your pen and answer me, telling me as copiously of your affairs as I have written of ours. Heaven bless you. Yours ever, Edward Hope. It was not only Mr. Hope's broad daylight mood which was not to be trusted with this letter. In this hour of midnight a misgiving seized upon him that it was extravagant. He became aware, when he had laid down his pen, that he was agitated. The door of his room opened into the garden. He thought he would look out upon the night. It was the night of the full moon. As he stood in the doorway, the festoons of creepers that dangled from his little porch waved in the night breeze. Long shadows from the shrubs lay on the grass, and in the depth of one of these shadows glimmered the green spark of a glow-worm. It was deliciously cool and serene. Mr. Hope stood leaning against the doorpost, with his arms folded, and was not long in settling the question whether the letter should go. "'Frank will think that I am in love,' he considered. "'He will not understand the real state of my feeling. He will think that I am in love. I should conclude so in his place. But what matters it what he infers and concludes?' I have written exactly what I thought and felt at the moment, and it is not from such revelations that wrong inferences are usually drawn. What I have written is true, and truth carries safely over land and sea, more safely than confidence compounded with caution. Frank deserves the simplest and freshest confidence from me. I am glad that no hesitation occurred to me while I wrote. It shall go, every word of it. He returned to his desk, sealed and addressed the letter, and placed it where it was sure to be seen in the morning, and carried to the post-office before he rose. End of chapter 8